Well, I'm in a series that I began just a few weeks ago. It's a series I'm calling Grace, the Undiluted Gospel. And my objectives throughout this series, I've made them known. It's really to minister the gospel of grace in simplicity, yet purity. My heart's deepest desire is to dispel the untruths that the body of Christ has been indoctrinated with, intoxicated with, inoculated with, incarcerated with, the untruths that the body of Christ has been artificially inseminated with. I'm referring to the teachings that have instructed us to employ our pitiful and mechanical works in an endeavor to underwrite the gospel of the finished work of the cross. Now that's a mouthful for me. That's an earful for you. That's a heartful for us. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Why do we do such things? Why do we feel it necessary to underwrite what Jesus did on the cross when there's zero risk of failure? There's no risk of failure here, friends. You see, when an insurance company underwrites a policy, you know what they do? They evaluate. They analyze risks involved. They look at data. You know why they do that? Because they're used to failure. They're used to automobiles getting in accidents. They're used to people dying, so they have to look at that kind of data. Friends, the body of Christ has been underwriting Jesus' finished work on the cross because they are not convinced in the depths of their heart that they are once His, always His. And so as a result, we have to underwrite it. What do we underwrite it with? We underwrite it with our good works. We underwrite it with our good behavior. We underwrite it with all kinds of things. They have not analyzed the data, and they have not believed the report that tells us that the Father has not lost even one. Come on, he's not even lost one. As a result, you know what believers do? They call for the underwriters to come, and they say, I want you to write me a policy of good works and obedience. Can you do that? It's already been written, friends. You see, we've been taught that our good works and our obedience to the commandments is what underwrites our salvation. Therefore, we have less risk of failure, and even to the point where we feel like we'll be more acceptable to the Father. Friends, listen to me. These untruths will not do anything with our salvation. In other words, it will not undo it. It will not negate it. It will not cancel it. But they will rob us of our intimacy with Christ. How? Because these fabrications leave us, you know what, in search all the time of that perfect insurance policy. You know, the one that comes with no exceptions, no limitations, no exclusions, no prorations, and no cancellations. I've got news for you today. We already have something like that in effect. Come on, you don't need to look for that. We've already got that under the new covenant. And it didn't come through blue cross, blue shield. It came through red cross, spirit seal. Come on. That's right. Through Jesus's bloody cross, we were sealed, the scriptures tell us, until the day of redemption. That's a beautiful scripture. I love it. Far too many believers have exchanged 
their passions and promises for pots and pans. You say, wait a minute now, Mark. You've got some explaining to do. That doesn't make sense at all. And you know what I would do? I would agree with you. That doesn't make sense at all to exchange passions, purpose, plans, promises, whatever they may be, for pots and pans. Much of the church has been indoctrinated with a mindset that has equipped them for Martha's kitchen, but not for Mary's living room. Martha occupied herself with cooking. Mary occupied herself with looking, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of her faith. Martha engaged herself with baking. Mary engaged herself with taking, taking in all the goodness of the Lord, taking in his love, taking in his mercy, taking in his teachings, taking in his grace. Martha busied herself with pots and pans. We see that story. Mary quieted herself with passion and promise. In Luke chapter 10, verses 40 through 42, we find these words. It says, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations. Now, you've got Jesus off in what would be known as kind of the living quarters, and you've got Martha over here in what would be called the kitchen, if you will. It's all one big room, essentially, but it says Martha was distracted. And she had a, a good heart about this. She wanted to set the table beautiful for Jesus. He was their guest. But she got distracted, it says, with all the preparations that had to be made. She came to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Can you see her lip? <laughs> it's a pity party. This is not a parable. This actually happened. I would love to peel back the curtains and watch this vignette, wouldn't you? She said, Jesus, don't you care? And my sister has left me to do all the work by myself. <laughs> Can you see Martha? Apron on, the flower all over the place, her hands on her hip. Can you see Martha? Bossy Martha. And then she says, tell her to help me. You know, one of my favorite things to do when I go to my daughter's, when we have a big gathering, uh, a family, maybe 20, 25 people, when the meal is all done, is I like to get up from the meal and be the first one at the sink to do those dishes. Not because I like doing dishes, but because I know it's a gift to the rest of the family because most of it is Valerie's family. Because I know it's a gift to the family to be able to spend time together. And I don't want to leave that evening with all those dirty dishes in my daughter's sink. I love to do that. And so I hear Martha here, but she's demanding. See, this is what kind of the law does, and that's all she's been under is an, an old covenant system. She doesn't know the new covenant of grace yet. And the old covenant demands. And that's why she said, tell her. She didn't say, Jesus, could you just kind of ask her to help me a little bit? No, she said, tell her to help me. And look at what Jesus says. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. And then he says, there is only one thing 
worth being concerned about. Come on, these are Jesus' words. They're in red, aren't they? Come on, these are Jesus' words. He said, I get your concern. He said, in fact, you have many concerns. But he said, there's only one thing worth being concerned about. What in the world is that going to be? You got your pencil out? You got your paper out? You want to know this, don't you? He doesn't quite tell us, but I love what he says. He says, Mary has discovered it. And then he says, and it will not be taken away from her. You see, it was in those intimate moments at Jesus' feet when Mary was taking in and not so concerned about giving out. It was there that Mary discovered the anointed one. It was there that Mary discovered Jesus' great love for her. It was there that Mary discovered that every time he opens his mouth, there's something coming out I've never, ever heard before in my life. We've heard so many things in our life that we're just almost not impressed by things anymore, right? But can you imagine how impressed Mary was as Jesus was spilling his heart into her heart? And he wasn't putting her under commandments either. It was there that Mary discovered Jesus' great love for her. It was there that Mary discovered grace, the undiluted gospel, being poured out in such quiet measure, abundant measure, but quiet measure. On his way to the cross, Jesus would stop by his friends Lazarus and Martha and Mary's house one more time. What was he coming by? To rest a little bit? To enjoy their company? To have dinner with them? It would be on this occasion that Mary would be put in remembrance of what Jesus said earlier when he stopped by. As she sat there in the silence of the meal, she remembered those words. Mary has discovered it and it will not be taken away from her. What was it that Mary discovered, you ask? She discovered that there was no need for underwriters. She discovered that she was once his, always his. Mary discovered that intimacy was the way out of her desert place. Intimacy was the key that unlocked refuge and relief, and pleasant contrast. She discovered that Jesus' living water had fertilized her heart. Christ had become more than a friend. He had become the oasis of grace and faith for her. In fact, the scriptures tell us it was in that moment that she took about a pint of pure nard. The Bible says it was a very expensive perfume and she poured it on Jesus' feet. The scriptures say, wiping his feet with her hair. She just lost it, didn't she? Do you see the devotion? A woman's hair was her glory. You wouldn't take your glory and touch feet with it, but Mary has lost her mind in a good way. 
She's so full of love. She's so overflowing with love. And she'd remember those words. Mary discovered it. And what she has will never be taken from her. And the scriptures tell us that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Remember, this is an expensive perfume. This smells so good. I mean, the cows and pigs outside are smelling this perfume. It is awesome. Friends, this is what intimacy looks like. That is intimacy. Through intimacy, a fragrance is left behind. Have you ever noticed that with your own emotions? Have you ever noticed that with your own energy? That after you come out of those very intimate moments with Christ, there's a fragrance. There's more than just a pep in your step. There's a fragrance that fills the air. And I'm telling you, whether you know it or not, people can see it. They can see it on you. They can see it in you. They can see it working through you. They know you've been with Jesus. Awesome. The one thing that I know about artificial insemination is it bypasses intimacy. Come on. It exchanges the bedroom for the procedure room. And listen, I'm not going to throw anybody. I believe there's times where that's necessary. I really do. But it wouldn't make sense for fertile couples to use this method in lieu of intimacy, would it? That wouldn't make any sense at all, would it? And it doesn't make sense when believers forsake affection in pursuit of connection. We already have connection, folks. We're as connected as we're ever going to get. And Jesus said, my father has not lost one. In other words, the connection always holds. It's not like your cable TV that goes in and out once in a while, your internet signal that goes in and out. His connection always holds. We are always connected. Intimacy and affection are the pathway to discovering and becoming acquainted with daddy's heart. Friends, we were made the righteousness of God in him. We are fertile soil and we were created to have a vibrant intimate relationship with christ with those thoughts in mind i want to minister for a little while this morning through a message i'm calling christ the oasis of grace and faith when i think about an oasis i think about a retreat I think about a resting place. I think about a haven or perhaps a sanctuary. It's a place where people go to get away from life, if you will. They go to these oases to be refreshed and just rest and relax. I want you to see how Merriam-Webster defines oasis. It says something that provides refuge, relief, or pleasant contrast. What do you, what do you mean pleasant contrast? A pleasant contrast compared to the circumstances you're dealing with, whatever those circumstances may be. It's a place of refuge. It's a place where you find relief. It's a place of pleasant contrast. A fertile spot in the desert where water 
is found. I want you to imagine for a second, you've all seen the movies. The guy is just kind of climbing his way through the sand dunes. He's lost in the desert and he looks off and he sees what he thinks is an oasis when he gets there. It might be just a mirage, but can you imagine all of a sudden, let's just say there is an oasis and there are these places in the desert that just don't make sense. There's a body of water and there might be four or five palm trees there. Can you imagine coming across something like that when you're thirsty and when you're tired? Doesn't that sound refreshing? That's an oasis, friends. And you would be instantly provided with refuge. You would be instantly provided with relief and a pleasant contrast. Friends, Jesus is all of these things to us. He is our refuge. The scriptures tell us that. He is our relief. Jesus is our pleasant contrast from a life without passion and promise. Jesus is our fertile spot in the desert. Jesus is our living water. I like this because when I look at that definition, hidden in Merriam-Webster's definition of oasis is an extremely compressed set of truths that perfectly describes what many of our lives were like before we discovered Christ, the oasis of grace and faith. We were at one time without refuge. Do you remember those days? We were one time without relief. We were at one time without pleasant contrast, without refreshing. In the same manner, many believers, their praise in their worship canteens have been empty for a long time. We've been so preoccupied in the kitchen that we have overlooked the intimacy at Jesus' feet. Come on now. We search for refuge. We search for relief. We search for pleasant contrast, not realizing that the fragrance from the oasis of grace and faith Fill our homes and hearts through one means, friends. It is intimacy with Christ. <laughs> That's how it happens. How many of you know that you can take a blade off a lawnmower and it will still sound like a lawnmower when you start it? Come on. I'll have to edit that out. You know how the lawnmower sounds like, right? You take the blade off of it one time, start it up, and it will still sound like a lawnmower. You can swipe your way through your yard. You can cover every square inch of your yard. And I guarantee when you are done, you will be no further ahead than when you started. That makes sense? Oh, you have went through the motions for sure. Oh, you've heard all the sound effects. Oh, yes, that's for sure. It felt like you were mowing. It sounded like you were mowing. You even got sweaty from mowing. But you're no farther ahead. Friends, listen to me. This is what religion does to people. It takes them through the motions. It takes them through all the sound effects. It even comes with sweat and sometimes blood and sometimes tears, but it leaves us in the same exact condition as when we started in search of refuge, relief, and pleasant contrast. Friends, Christ, the oasis of grace and faith, has already provided us with refuge. He is our refuge. He is our relief. He's already provided us with 
refuge, relief, and pleasant contrast over all of the chaos. Come on. We, we live in a chaotic world at times, sometimes more than others. We live in this chaos, and he's already given us everything we need that pertains to life and godliness to deal with chaos and to deal with dysfunction when life throws it our way. Come on. Be real with me now. It happens, doesn't it? Absolutely. You would never know what's happening in my life because I don't wear it. I realized the lawnmower's running with no blade in it. It's time to go into intimate worship with Lord and get refreshed. Otherwise, I carry that baggage with me, and when I open my mouth, that's what will come out. So when we sense that we're kind of more on the negative side, when we sense that we just can't even make a comment hardly that it's positive, friends, I'm telling you, find the feet of Jesus, would you? Just get out of the kitchen for a little while. Find the feet of Jesus. Find that oasis. Find that resting place. So to say that our lives were chaotic at one time, I think that's a masterpiece of an understatement. I don't know if we reel this reel back far enough in my life. My life was very chaotic at one time. Dysfunctional, if you will, right? We think about the word dysfunction. You know what that word comes from? It comes from sandwiching two words together, difficult and function. That's what dysfunction means. Dysfunction means difficult to function. I don't know about you, but that's what my life was like prior to Christ. And I'll be honest with you, even after Christ, even after the oasis wore off, even after the honeymoon wore off a little bit, I found myself working so hard that I still felt my life was like chaotic. I still felt like it was difficult to function. Unfortunately, much of the church has also gotten stuck in dysfunction. In other words, they find it, what, difficult to function. Why? Because they have been taught that their main purpose in life is the banging of pots and pans rather than the embrace of passion and promise. <laughs> Jesus didn't save you so that he could have a soldier. He didn't save you so that he could have a servant to work for him, friends. He saved us because he loved us and because he wanted to bring us into his family, and he wanted to shower us with blessings. Ladies, I want you to imagine with me for a moment that your husband just gave you a necklace that is worth millions of dollars. But in preparation of making this necklace, he decided to cut corners a little bit. And he decided on this million-dollar necklace to put a dime store clasp on it. Come on. <laughs> would that make any sense? No, it wouldn't make any sense. I mean, a million-dollar necklace with a dime store clasp? It doesn't make any sense. You know why? Because a dime store clasp is made for fashion jewelry, not fine jewelry. Furthermore, your expensive necklace would not have the protection that is suitable for a gift so extravagant. It wouldn't have the protection, would it? So you want the protection. Friends, you and I are more than an expensive necklace in the eyes of God. And we certainly are not wearing a cheap clasp. We were purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ and placed into the oasis of grace and faith. We are exquisite sons and daughters of the king. In Christ, there are no cheap clasps. You got to get that in your heart. In Christ, there are no cheap clasps. In Christ, 
there is no need for an underwriter. In Christ, no one is ever lost. This is our promise from Jesus himself. I want you to look at this promise. We find it in John chapter 10, verses 25 to 30. Very familiar passage. Jesus is talking. He said, I did tell you, but you do not believe. In other words, we've been through this, guys, before, but you didn't get it the first time. You can get it the second time. I'm going to tell you again. He said, but you didn't believe me when I told you. Now, come on. We're just better off to believe Jesus when he says something, right? Get your emotions out of the way. Get your lawnmower without a blade out of the way. And let's get down to what Jesus said. He said, I did tell you, but you do not believe. He said, the works I do in my father's name testify about me. In other words, they have a fragrance on them. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. He says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. Come on, Judy, you were talking about that word. That little word, all, with a big heart, right? That word, all, is a powerful word. It's a beautiful word. Jesus said, my Father who has given them, that's you, that's us, okay, given them to me is greater than all. But he doesn't say all what? Does he leave us to fill in the blanks there? No, because behind that word, all, when Jesus said it, they understood exactly what he was talking about. That word all is pas, P-A-S in the Greek. It literally means whatsoever and whosoever. He said, my father is greater than all the whatsoevers. My father is greater than all the whosoevers. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Doesn't that make you feel good? When you know that a whatsoever can't take you out of the hand of God and a whosoever can't take you out of the hand of God. I don't know what camp the devil and his horde of demons fall under. He can fall under the whatsoevers as far as I'm concerned. Or he can be under the whosoevers. That doesn't matter because it's all covered, friends. And you happen to be a whosoever, so you can't take yourself out of the Father's hand. These are Jesus' words. He's talking about sheep here, right? And he's talking about how he's not even lost one. And he's talking about how nobody can come along and snatch them out of his Father's hand. Why? He said, because my father is greater than every whatsoever you're going to bump into and every whosoever you're going to bump into. These are powerful words. No one can snatch him out of my father's hand. I am the father of one. John is writing here and he is echoing the very words that the apostle Paul wrote when he said, nothing in creation would be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So he's reaching back and he's saying, this is what this means, is nothing can separate you from my Father's love. It's beautiful. Why? Because we have been sealed. Friends, we have been sealed. Get used to this oasis of grace and faith. You're sealed in it. Decorate it, would you? Get used to it. Hang some pictures, would you? You're sealed in here. You're not going anywhere. This is your eternal home. Let me ask you a question. How is it even possible to go to dinner with a truth like that and still not comprehend that there are no underwriters of the new covenant. Come on. How can you look at that scripture right there where it says, he is greater than all, all the whatsoevers, all the whosoevers? Because a lot of ministers left that part out. They didn't tell you what the all meant. 
And so you weren't able to be able to connect the dots in your brain to go, oh, he's greater than everything. He's greater than all my stuff. He's greater than everybody's stuff. He's greater than that. So how is it possible to sit with a truth like that and still not comprehend that there are no underwriters of the new covenant? Jesus' blood alone, friends, took away all of our sins and took us out of the grip of the whatsoevers and the whosoevers in life. Amen? Religion and Old Covenant doctrines, listen to me carefully, religion and Old Covenant doctrines are no more than artificial insemination put there through the instruments of man, but not the intimacy of God. The enemy wants to keep us at a distance so that we cannot see the sparkling gems of the new covenant. Did you know that it's impossible for the most renowned jeweler in the world. I mean, this is the guy that knows jewels, diamonds. I mean, this is the finest person, whoever that is. It's impossible for the most renowned jeweler in the world to tell the difference between fashion jewelry and fine jewelry. You say, Mark, that doesn't make sense at all. I wouldn't agree with that a bit. And I wouldn't either if that's where I finished the statement. Here's what I wanted to say. It's impossible for the most renowned jeweler in the world to tell the difference between fashion jewelry and fine jewelry from across the room. They look the same. They can trick you. The lights make everything sparkle. It's impossible for him to know from across the room. Religion does the same thing. It keeps us at a distance so that we cannot see the priceless gem of righteousness at work in our lives. Religion and Old Covenant take us to the kitchen. We'll get to Jesus later. That's what it does. Keeps us working all the time, busy. Religion will never remind us that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that we should show forth the praises of Him who's called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Religion won't tell you that, friends. Religion never reminds us that we are wearing jeweled crowns and royal diadems. Looking through the lens of the Old Covenant tells us that we are unworthy to wear the king's crown. We're unworthy to wear the king's ring. We're unworthy to wear the king's expensive gifts. We're unworthy to wear the king's necklace. Why? Because we might lose them. It would do us a real good to take a look at the clasp. I want you to take a look at the clasp around that necklace. It's a clasp that declares, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's a clasp that declares once his, always his. It's a clasp that declares red cross spirit sealed. It's a clasp that declares by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever all those who are made holy. It's a clasp that says nothing can separate you from my Father's love, which is in Christ Jesus. It's a clasp that doesn't come with artificial insemination of the old covenant. It's a clasp that secures us to Christ, the oasis of grace and faith. Many believers are afraid to wear the gift of righteousness because they are under the delusion that it's held intact by their own dime store clasp, underwritten by their pitiful works. 
They are fearful that they can lose their salvation and that they can tarnish somehow the gift of righteousness. Impossible. Absolutely impossible. And because so many believers are still looking through the lens of the old covenant, they misinterpret. Come on now. They misinterpret what they're seeing. They misinterpret what they're hearing. They're born again, yes. They're children of God, yes. God loves them just as much as he loves anybody, yes. But they misinterpret what they're seeing. I'm going to give you an example of that. Last Sunday night, I had to go out into my driveway to do something. It was already dark outside, and when I was doing something out in my driveway, I happened to look over at my neighbor's house, and I noticed that her trunk lid was open on her car, and I thought, what's she doing, bringing in the groceries? Uh, you know, it's like 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. What is she doing out there, you know? And uh, I thought, I hope it doesn't rain. If I didn't think much about it, I went in, I went to sleep. When I got up the next morning to go to work, I happened to look over in that same direction. I want you to see now the picture of what I saw. I took a picture of it. This is what I saw. You see what I'm seeing? <laughs> it wasn't in her trunk lid. It was the garbage can on the other side of her trunk. But it was dark. I couldn't see that well. I didn't have the depth perception that you will have when it's light outside. It was the lid of the trash bin that was open. I couldn't tell the difference between blue and green, although you can see the two colors. Do you see what happens when we look at things from a distance? And when we look through the dark lens of night, friends? We imagine things that are simply not true. It happens when we look through this dark covenant of the old covenant. You see, only in the light, friends, is truth revealed. Only in the light. Friends, Jesus is our light. Jesus is our truth. And when we look through his heart and we look through his eyes, things become plain, things become clear. It's only when we look through the revelation that Christ has, the oasis of grace and faith begin to blossom everywhere. In Christ, there is no fashion jewelry, only fine jewelry. In Christ, there are no cheap clasps, only secure holes. In Christ, there is no garbage in our trunks, friends. In Christ, there is no artificial insemination of the old covenant. In Christ, there's no need to underwrite the risk from the whatsoevers and the whosoevers. In Christ, there are no premiums. I hope you love that part. And there are no cancellations, friends. Everything is free. Jesus paid it all, friends. He gave it to us unconditionally. There's no premium. There's no cancellation. In Christ, we discover the oasis of grace and faith. And this grace and faith, listen to me carefully, are intensified. They're intensified. They're magnified through intimacy with him. Let me ask you a question. If Satan can't steal our salvation, we know that's true. Then why does he bombard us with temptation and frustration and vexation? Come on, that's a good question. If he can't steal our salvation, what is he after? I love what my mama used to always say. She didn't coin the phrase, but she always told us misery loves company. He's in misery. People that are having a pity party love other people to join them. Do you ever notice that? That's why I like to cut them off when they get too deep in this kind of stuff because I just say, look, I can't join this, okay? 
you did send the invitation in time. <laughs> just cut them off. Just change the subject, if you will. He is not able to steal our inheritance, but he can muddy our intimacy with Christ. But we don't have to forfeit our intimacy with Christ. When we come to church on a Sunday morning, if you have intimate moments, great. That's fine. That's wonderful. That's marvelous. I'm happy for you. I'm a cheerleader for you. But it's out there in that real world, that home that we live in, that car that we drive in. Friends, those can be oases. Those can be intimate places for you. Just, just shut off, disconnect from all the stuff that's going on and just find the Father's heart. Listen, I don't believe Mary was doing any talking at Jesus' feet. In fact, when Martha came out of the kitchen, Mary didn't even speak. She could have defended herself, but there was no need for it. Martha's having a pity party. Mary's decided she wasn't going to join it. Jesus took over. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, I want you to see these words. Now, I'm using these words from three different versions of the Bible. The CEV, which is the Contemporary English Version. We've got the DRB, which is the Dure Rhyme Bible, and then the King James Bible. They're kind of mixed together, but this is how it reads. It says, let love and loyalty always show like a necklace. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, when you have a necklace, the best place to put it is in a place where you can showcase it, right? Otherwise, it's just a dog tag, friends. Come on, with the dog tags go down underneath the shirt. But when a lady wears a necklace, I mean, it's out. It's out here for us to see. And it says here, let love and loyalty always show like a necklace and write them in your mind. What are you writing in your mind? Love and loyalty. And thou shalt find grace and good understanding before God and men. I love these next ones. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Come on, lean not unto thine own understanding, but in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. How many of you quoted that before? You like that one, don't you? Come on. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Don't be half-hearted. Be all in. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And lean not unto thine own understanding. In other words, get your opinions out of the way for a second, okay? What does Jesus have to say? Get Martha's opinion out of the way. What does Jesus have to say? Lean not unto thine own understanding, but in all thy ways. And it says, acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Now, I want you to see what this word acknowledge means in the Hebrew. I love this. It's yada in the Hebrew. It means to discover it means to become acquainted with. It means to be intimate with. Isn't that awesome? And so he's saying there, in all thy ways, acknowledge him. It's saying, in all thy ways, discover him. In all thy ways, be acquainted with him. In all thy ways, be intimate with him. Doesn't that take on new meaning now? You see, I can acknowledge someone and not be intimate with them. I can acknowledge someone and never discover them. Someone can just say, Mark, and I can say, yes, that's a form of acknowledgement. I've acknowledged you've called my attention for something. That's acknowledging. So it's not a real good translation, this word acknowledge. We have to do the best we can with it. But when we look behind it, we find this Hebrew word, yada, which means to discover. 
discover Christ. When I preached a message about five years ago at a meeting down in Indiana, I've told you this before, about 95% of the people there were former Amish. And I preached a message called Discover Jesus. It had nothing to do with today's message, but Discover Jesus. To draw them out of that pitiful need to find underwriters, to underwrite their covenant. And I wish I would have invested in stock for Kleenex before I started that message. Because these people had been under so much old covenant for so many years that literally right out of the gate, their eyes were leaking and some of them never stopped the whole message. Because like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, they had never heard this kind of stuff before. This is discovery mode, friends. This is becoming acquainted with. This is becoming intimate with. Doesn't that take on new meaning? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thine understanding, but in all thy ways discover him. In all thy ways become acquainted with him. In all thy ways be intimate with him. And it says, and he will direct thy path. I get excited about this stuff. So that sixth verse that we're looking at right there, in all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. Again, it means discover like Mary did. It means become acquainted with like Mary did. It means to be intimate with like Mary was. In other words, trade your pots and pans, folks, for passions and promise. Sit a while at the feet of Jesus Christ, the oasis of grace and faith. Go ahead, wear your expensive and extravagant robe of righteousness and crown for all to see. Wear your crown of jewels. Wear your royal diadem that all might see that you have victory in Christ Jesus. We've got the victory in him, friends. Wear your new covenant that says, Red cross, spirit sealed. Friends, where your confidence, the body of Christ, can lack confidence so easily. Where your confidence, not arrogance. Where your confidence in the marvelous truths that we discover and become acquainted with Jesus through the intimacy of the new covenant of grace by faith alone, friends. Now, I want you to look at Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. Look at these words. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Isn't that an interesting way to say it? I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now, I want us to lay Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6, right next to Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. Guess what? The scriptures tell us that Adam knew Eve and she conceived, or Adam knew Eve and she became pregnant, okay? The Hebrew word behind our English word knew, K-N-E-W, in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, is the same Hebrew word behind the English word acknowledge in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6. It is the word Yah-Dah. <laughs> what does the word Yah-Dah mean in the Hebrew? It means to discuss. Discover, become acquainted with, be intimate with. In other words, 
Adam discovered Eve. Do you see that? Adam discovered Eve. Adam became acquainted with Eve. Adam was intimate with Eve. And guess what happened when Adam discovered Eve, when Adam became intimate with Eve? I'll tell you what happened. The life of their firstborn son began to stir inside of her. <laughs> Friends, as we are intimate in our relationship with the Father, the life of the firstborn son begins to stir on the inside of us. I'm talking about Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. I'm talking about Jesus, the firstborn of the dead. I'm talking about Jesus, the firstborn among many brethren. Isn't that awesome? He begins to stir on the inside of us with this fragrance that's emitted, that seeps out into the atmosphere that all might smell, that all might see, that all might taste and see that the Lord is good. In Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 16, we find these words. It says, One day Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. And now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Do you know what that sounded like? It sounded like the first three letters of Michelle's license plate. Oh! I noticed that when I drove up this morning, I couldn't help but see that. Oh, that's what it sounded like. This man is not wearing a little cardboard placard saying need food. This is his voice. Alms, alms, alms. And he sees Peter and John going in there. Alms, alms. Now, the scriptures just told us that this man had been lame from birth. He had been a beggar from the time he could crawl. His life had no variety, no passion, no promise. He knew the last name of every underwriter from Jerusalem to kingdom come. He may have been familiar with Blue Cross, Blue Shield, but he had never heard of Red Cross Spirit Sealed. The only oasis that the crippled man had become acquainted with over the years was the temple gate called beautiful. This was his place of refuge. This was his haven, if you will. This was the only sanctuary he knew. The fertile spot in his own desert had been reduced to a location, but he had no revelation of the Christ, the oasis of grace and faith. Friends, grace and faith listen to me carefully, are bigger than a single event. Come on. They're bigger than a location. Grace and faith are the irrevocable gifts of God. Grace and faith, you know what they do? They strip the beggar's tin cup right out of your hands. Grace and faith lead us into intimacy with Jesus. Many in the body of Christ 
have slipped into this climate of satisfaction. Like the daily rituals of the layman, they just kind of go through the motions. We may have our own spiritual routine, but it's no big deal. We often choose the kitchen. Come on, this is my heart. Hear me now on this thing. We often choose the kitchen over the living room and rarely discover the refreshing oasis of grace and faith that are found at the feet of Jesus. I am thrilled. I am thrilled. As I was looking at this story yesterday, I thought, wow, I'm so thrilled that Peter and John didn't just throw another coin into the lame man's tin cup. You see, a coin in his cup would have been no more than a cheap clasp on a precious soul. That's all. It would have never gotten him out of that situation he was in. Let me ask you some questions. How many religious people do you think, I mean, this is the temple now, folks. How many religious people do you think may have walked around the lame man over the years? Thousands? Tens of thousands? He's been lame since birth. How many religious people offered the lame man a coin at best? Friends, I continue to minister the gospel of the finished work of grace because I really don't want to just throw another coin into people's tin cups, right? Like Mary, I want you to discover intimacy at the feet of Christ. I want the body of Christ to see that he is God, that he is faithful. I want the body of Christ released from the chains of indoctrination, intoxication, incarceration, and from the chains of artificial insemination of the old covenant. You see, the lame man's greatest need that day was not sympathy. His greatest need was the prison key. The key that through the shed blood of Christ, the oasis of grace and faith, would unlock his refuge would unlock his relief, would unlock his pleasant contrast. He needed someone to unlock his lame legs. Can you imagine how stiff your legs would be if you haven't used them? How lame they would be? He needed someone to come along and unlock his lame walk and release him from the prison of pots and pans and tin cups. He needed someone to emancipate him from all of the whatsoevers and the whosoevers. He needed someone to liberate him from the lawnmower with no blade. He needed someone to unshackle him from the darkness of dysfunction. You know what I mean? Difficult to function, right? Friends, the layman needed someone to show him what true intimate worship and a relationship look like. I'm talking about the intimacies that are found at the feet of Christ, the oasis of grace and faith. Next scriptures. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. You see, they're not going to walk around. Then Peter said, look at us. And there's an exclamation point there, which means he did it with passion. He did it with a voice to say, hey, I'm talking to you. He said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. He said, silver or gold I do not have, 
but what I do have. Come on, we got to give what we do have to people in their need. You can't give them what you don't have, but the scripture tells us that we've been given everything already that pertains to life and godliness, not just your own life, but for somebody else's. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping, walking and leaping and praising God. I think the man's a little excited, don't you? I think he's excited. Nobody else is doing that. Shh, quiet. Don't run. Walk. You know, stuff we do to our kids. Be quiet. Shh. Just walk. Don't run. He doesn't care. He's been touched in such a deep way, and it was deeper than his legs, friends. He's been touched in a powerful way by the, the blood of Christ. He's been touched by the grace and the faith of Christ. He's walking. And jumping, the scriptures say, and praising God. His low self-esteem was left behind with the beggar's cup. I guarantee he didn't bring that beggar's cup with him into the temple. I guarantee it. He just discarded that thing. Otherwise, the coins would have jumped out anyway with all that leaping and jumping. They would have just been flying out anyway. but no point to have that cup with you. He had finally, he had finally found the gate that was even more beautiful than the temple gate called beautiful. He had found Christ. Friends, when this narrative began, the lame man's self-esteem was so low that he couldn't even look Peter and John in the eyes. They had to say, look at us. He had his head down, shaking that tin cup, going alms, 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 alms. And then Peter and John said, come on now. Uh-uh, you got to look up, friend. you got to look up at us. I want you to see that we've got confidence when we tell you this here. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And it took faith for him to do that. He had never walked a day in his life. He had never stood a day in his life. Don't you think that took faith? Peter said, look on us. That means the Holy Spirit was so present. Peter didn't say, look in us. Look to us. He said, look on us. And I believe when he looked on him, he saw the presence of Jesus Christ. He saw the glory on him. He saw the grace and the faith on him. And you know what it did? It ignited grace and faith in his own heart. Beautiful. Peter had to say, look on us. And I believe in the quietness of that moment. Peter would have been saying something like this in his heart. Friend, you don't need a coin. You need Christ. You don't need a hand out. You need a hand up. You don't need to be carried by four. You need to be married to one. The one who shed his blood for the bride of Christ. Can you imagine all your life You've got four dedicated friends that carry you on a mat. They carry you everywhere you go. And I can only imagine Peter just saying, you're carried by four days or over with. You are married to one. 
Come on, that's <laughs> good news. Next scriptures. When all the people saw him walking and praising God. In other words, he got their attention, didn't he? And all the people saw. You, look, you can't hide grace and faith. You can't hide intimacy. When you discover something, you can't hide it. There were times that Jesus would tell people after he did a great miracle, he would say, now I want you to go and don't tell anybody. And in their hearts, they were saying, we can't hide this. And the Bible says they told the whole town before the sun went down. Come on. You can't hide when the power touches you. And so it says, when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Next scriptures. I like this right here. It says, underscore this in your heart. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Come on. Why should anything surprise us anymore? God's a good God. Why don't we just set our expectometer on good, right? Leave it over here on good. It never goes to bad. It's never in the middle. It's not like your thermometer at home. His goodometer is always good, friends. And that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Have you not been intimate with Jesus? Because this is what happens when you come out of intimate moments with him. This is what happens when you discover him for who he really is. This is what happens when you become acquainted with Christ. The glory starts manifesting. The power starts working to the point where you don't even have to tell people to look on you. They can already see it. I want to ask you a couple of questions. Why did the man hold on to Peter and John? I had to think about that yesterday. I'm thinking... Why is the man holding on to Peter and John? Was it because he was unstable? Of course not. Remember, he was just walking and leaping and praising God. God had just recreated his legs. His legs worked perfectly. So why is he holding on to Peter and John? He's holding on out of gratitude. He doesn't want to let his new friends go. Kind of like we do our kids. When I have to say goodbye and hug them, I want to just hold on to them. I never want to let them go. Come on, mothers. Come on, daddies. I just want to keep holding on to them. I think that's why he was doing it. He was doing it out of gratitude. Likewise, we don't come to Jesus' feet the oasis of grace and faith, just because our emotions or our bodies are a little unstable. That's a good reason to come, but that shouldn't be the main reason we come. We come to Jesus' feet out of gratitude. Thanksgiving. We come to his feet to discover, to become acquainted with, to be intimate with him. We come to Jesus' feet that in all of our ways we might acknowledge him in all of our ways that we may know Christ. 
Next scriptures. Peter says, why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Oh, we're witnesses of this. By faith, he says, come on, it's by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. He said, it's by faith in the name of Jesus. This man whom you see and know was made strong, it's by faith. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. Isn't that awesome? So much encapsulated in this little narrative. If you just open your hearts and open your mind, spend some time with him and let him birth the truths and the realities of what took place during that time. Awesome. My closing thoughts are these. I had a dear friend call me recently. He was calling me because a minister had recently approached him and asked him if he was aware that he may have the calling on his life to be a pastor. And so he called me a few days ago and he said, Pastor Mark, what do I do now? What do I do about this? I took a deep breath and I settled in my spirit because I didn't want to get religious on him. Boy, I was tempted to get the lawnmower out with no blade, but I just kept listening for the Holy Spirit. It was almost this awkward silence. And I said, friend, before you respond to such a calling on your life, I said, you must learn to wash feet. <laughs> that doesn't sound spiritual, does it? Surely you were going to say, I need to go to Bible school. No, wash feet. Washing feet can come in a million different colors, friends. I think you'll know when you get there. I told him, you got to learn to wash feet. And I said, ministry begins and ends at the feet. Jesus, just before his crucifixion, he would wash his disciples' feet to remind them of this great truth, that ministry begins and ministry ends at the feet. That's the intimate place. You see, most people, if you ask them to define an oasis, they would define an oasis as a five-star hotel with a spa. But that's not how Jesus defined an oasis. He defined it as an upper room and a basin. You've got to learn to wash feet! Times when I would go to the jailhouse because one of my parishioners were in jail and I knew it was a lonely place and I would go and I would say, I'm here to see Fred or whoever it was. Fred has since went on to be with Jesus. Grown man with about a 
13, 14-year-old mindset. And I'll never forget. And he always talked like this. Always had his finger in his mouth like this. One finger. And I'll never forget when I went into the room where I was looking through the glass and I picked up the phone and Fred walked in in his orange jumpsuit and sat down and he didn't smile much, but he was glad to see me. He was like the beggar with his eyes looking down. I said, Fred, look at me. Hi, Pastor Mark. And as we got talking for a little while, he said, Pastor Mark, can you sing me that one song that we do at church all the time? I said, Fred, we do a lot of songs. He said, you know, it's that one song. And I knew which song he was talking about. And I laid my hand on the glass and he laid his hand on the other side of the glass in front of my hand. I can't sing. I knew the guards were watching me through the closed circuit television, but I sang my heart out to him because it was equivalent to washing feet. If I could have got to him, I would have washed his feet. In fact, I had physically washed that man's feet before. See, friends, washing feet is discovering the goodness of God in every situation, every moment. Being intimate with him. So I said to my friend that ministry begins, first of all, at Jesus' feet. You won't have anything to give if you don't sit at Jesus' feet first. I said there are no substitutes. Discovering him, I told him, was not about pots and pans, but rather it's about passion and promise. Becoming acquainted with him is not about the procedure room. It's about the upper room. It's about the living room. It's that intimate place where you're with him and you're shut off from all the distractions like Martha was distracted with. Friends, becoming intimate with him does not need to be underwritten by Blue Cross. Come on, Blue Shield. It's already finished with Red Cross Spirit Sealed. Our quest is over. We have discovered Christ. Intimacy is found only in Christ, the oasis of grace and faith. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. Grace, the undiluted gospel, does not come with indoctrination, intoxication, incarceration, or even artificial insemination of the old covenant. We are under the new covenant of grace, the covenant that does not employ our contributions in an endeavor to underwrite Jesus's finished work on the cross. In Christ, the oasis of grace and faith, there is zero risk of failure. Once his, always his. Whose report have you believed? There is everything right. Hear my heart. Everything right with serving in the kingdom of God. Just don't exchange your passion and promise for pots and pans. You see, Mary discovered Jesus when she spent time at his feet. A discovery that Jesus declared would not be taken away from her. In other words, once you see him in all of his loveliness, you cannot unsee him. That's what Jesus was getting at. She had discovered him. She had discovered his goodness. And 
That's why he said, when you see this, when you see this gospel of grace, when you see this finished work, he says, you'll never be able to unsee it. In other words, he said to her, it will never be taken away from you. You'll always be able to see it. The lame man discovered the power of God when by grace and faith, he forsook his tin cup and not only walked, but leaped away from his routine as a beggar. Friends, there is zero begging in intimacy. I want you to hear that today. You do not, should not, never need to beg God in intimacy. Your prayer life is about to change. I told a friend that the other night. I said, my prayer life has changed since I came into this revelation of grace. I'm not like a crazy man shouting at the top of my lungs, commanding God to do this and that. I just rest in his finished work and just agree with his heart. The blade has been put back on your lawnmower. Your difficult-to-function life has been pleasantly contrasted at the feet of Christ, the oasis of grace and faith. Your whatsoevers and your whosoevers cannot separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, through intimacy with Christ, the canteen in our soul just overflows all the time. This is what intimacy looks like. The canteen never runs dry. Through intimacy with Christ, we are no longer carried by four. We are married to one. The one when we fall, you know what he does? Like Peter and John extends his right hand and helps us up. The one who strengthens our walk through grace and faith. The one that allows us to hold on to him. Not because we are unstable, but out of gratitude. Out of thanksgiving. Out of appreciation. Out of intimacy. Friends, let love and loyalty always show like a necklace. And write them in your mind. And thou shalt find grace and good understanding before God and men. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding, but in all thy ways acknowledge him. In all thy ways discover him. In all thy ways entreat him. In all thy ways become acquainted with him. In all thy ways be intimate with him. And he shall direct thy paths. Not just paths that lead to a five-star hotel with a spa, but a path that leads to an upper room with a basin, friends. You see, that's what intimacy looks like. An intimacy that can never be taken away from you. An intimacy that is found only in Christ the oasis of grace and faith. Father, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you, Father, that as this word finds its way to the airwaves, that people will see that they've been banging pots and pans far too long. They've been rattling the tin cup far too long, and that includes the body of Christ. Help them to have the confidence to be able to walk away from that going, there are no underwriters under this new covenant of grace because the scriptures tell us you have not lost even one. You said that your father who is greater than all the whatsoevers and the whosoevers hold us 
in his right hand. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you so much that as we find time to move from the kitchen to the living room, the kitchen to the bedroom, the kitchen to the upper room, that we find that intimate place, that place of worship. Maybe it's in our car. Maybe it's walking down through the woods. There's all kinds of places to find that intimate spot where we just tune out all the things that we're distracted with and we listen to Christ speak into our hearts things that we have never heard from man. I thank you, Father, that intimacy does not come through a surgical instrument, but it comes through the intimate awareness of Jesus working and operating and speaking into our lives. We are never the same. We are jumping and leaping and praising God that all might see we are connected to Christ, the oasis of grace and faith. In Jesus' name, amen.